Greetings, superstars. Welcome back to Word Up with Danny Katz, your one-stop 5D superhero listening spot. I'm Danny Katz, transformation agent, empowered badassery coach, and quantum languaging consultant. And I'm so happy you're here. Here at Word Up, we are devoted to supporting you in becoming your most authentic, empowered, liberated version of yourself. We do this by sharing quantum languaging upgrades, conscious communication tools, witchy life hacks, planetary service announcements, and high-vibing, deep-diving conversations with original thinkers, visionary weirdos, and rebel badasses. Our every show aims to expand your consciousness, raise your frequency, sharpen your critical thinking skills, and make you giggle. <laughs> Be sure to hit that subscribe button and to join us on Locals at dannycats.locals.com where you can watch the video versions of all our episodes including those that are a little bit too spicy for the non-free speech friendly platforms. And it's also where paid subscribers can tune into the second half of all my interviews and enjoy a plethora of other bonuses, including live monthly Q&As, unpublished writings and videos, and behind the scenes intel. Join our quickly growing tribe of high vibe superstars at dannycats.locals.com. Okay, now that we've got all our housekeeping out of the way, let's enjoy today's episode of Word Up with Danny Katz. Today I am joined by author, speaker, counterculture, philosopher, and the author of the newly released book, The Coronation, Charles Eisenstein. I was so excited to get a chance to drop in with Charles, who has been on my radar for ever. <laughs> um, Charles and I were both writers at Reality Sandwich at the same time. We've had sort of parallel, though very, very, very different career paths. I, I like to think that we come from the same future and we're both here reverse engineering it in our own ways with our own flavors. So before we jump into the conversation with Charles, I'm reminding you to hit that subscribe button. And as always, the first half of this conversation is completely free because I love you and giving is awesome. You can find the second half of this conversation and all of my podcast interviews on my locals page at dannycats.locals.com or at Patreon patreon.com slash dannycats. On both of those platforms, my paid subscribers get access to all of my second half podcast interviews, as well as tons of bonus content, monthly drop-ins. It's so worth it. So be sure to support me over on either Patreon or Locals, or why not both? Yes and is such a fun option. And I think that's it for housekeeping. Stay tuned, buckle up, prepare yourselves for my awesome conversation with Charles Eisenstein. episode of Word Up with Danny Katz. It is my pleasure and honor to be joined today by 
author, counterculture philosopher, Charles Eisenstein, um, who just launched his most recent book, The Coronation. Charles, welcome. How are you? Hey, Danny. Happy to be here. Great. I know you're just coming off of a pretty exciting weekend. How was Arcadia? It was amazing. Uh, it, I, I just, you know, since the pandemic, I've become all the more appreciative of in-person events. There's there's more of an entry threshold to hold an event, you know, to travel. The, there's the uncertainty in travel. And, and that higher bar kind of raises the energy level and the expectations. And, and there's like just a common awareness that this is really special. Yeah. And, and so the events that I've been going to, including that one, have just been fantastic. Great. Wonderful. I'm happy to hear it. Um, I know that you have been, I mean, full disclosure, you've been on my radar for such a long time. I mentioned before we started recording, you and I were both writing for Reality Sandwich back in the day. I think you first hit my radar with um, Sacred Economics, and you were really, you know, at the forefront of the conversation of how to give, sell, trade in a more integrous way. And then you jumped back on my radar around the the pandemic. Um, and I noticed you were taking a really sort of centrist line. Um, and then I noticed that that kind of shifted for you. So I'm curious to know, like, how does it feel to be a pariah? <laughs> yeah. Um, you know, it's, it's interesting. I'm, I'm trying to think, did I take a centrist line? Um, what would you more, call it? I think it's more, um, like I was pretty strongly in the skeptical camp when it came to various COVID policies, lockdown, okay. distancing, masking, vaccination. Okay. Um, but my take on it was um, what, what I uh, did not buy into or subscribe to is the idea that this is a war of good against evil and that the cause of all this is a uh, conscious conspiracy of evil individuals mm -hmm. that are seeking deliberately and consciously to dominate the world for their malignant uh, purposes. That is, in my view, a way to simplify. I mean, not that there aren't conspiracies, corruption, lying, <clears throat> cover-ups and all that. Yes, there are. But as far as like the explanation for what happened, why it happened, uh -uh. It's a lot more complex than that. And so that refusal to subscribe to like the militant conspiracy theories kind of earned me a reputation in the health freedom domain as like kind of a wishy-washy, like a, like, um, you know, a suspect character, maybe controlled opposition and so forth. Mm -hmm. So that's, but as far as like, you know, the, the questions of the day, um, I'm, I wouldn't call myself a centrist in that, in that regard. I'm not like, well, maybe the vaccines are not as bad as they, as they say, but, but like maybe they're, no, I'm, I'm pretty, uh, at this point, I was willing to give them the benefit of the doubt at first. Mm -hmm. um, I thought, yeah, maybe they'll, they'll work. Uh, maybe the stuff about, um, you know, auto, uh, autoimmune enhancement, and I mean, auto body um, <clears throat> enhancement and all that kind of stuff. Ugh, I'm messing up my words. You know what I'm talking about. ADE. Yeah. Um, 
antibody dependent enhancement and uh, a non-sterilizing vaccine causing mutations and variants and and maybe they the, the the adverse events won't be that bad and et cetera et cetera like I was you know willing to give it the benefit of the doubt but um, events since then have proved at least to my satisfaction that they were a horrible mistake so anyway um, yeah I, I, I would it's and it's good to come out and say it and the thing is like this is another like when you ask a question like that, it's like it used to be, so I've heard in Eastern Europe, or actually even when I lived in Taiwan in the eighties during martial law, mm -hmm. where like in order to have a conversation about something controversial, something heretical, mm -hmm. uh, you first like made a very, very subtle probe just to kind of gauge, you know, is that person at all possibly a dissident. And if you get a positive response, then you go a little farther and a little farther because you don't just come out and say it, you know, right? Uh, because you could get arrested by the secret police. Mm -hmm. Now, you and I, neither of us are going to get arrested by the secret police, but I still have this caution. OK, like, how far can I go? Like, are we going to get censored? Um, <laughs> or, or am I going to get, you know, attacked for being a granny killer and like all this stuff? And so and, and the fact that I developed that habit was really significant to me. It, that's what showed me, wow, we are really on the on the way toward a totalitarian society. That is a habit of totalitarianism. So anyway, I know I said an awful lot for the first uh, part of our conversation. So I will turn it, was, it back over to you. It was you. perfect. I welcome it. And I'm really happy um, that you feel comfortable to speak freely as, as you totally are with me. It's interesting because, you know, our, we've both been writers for, for a long time and kind of on these parallel pathways. And I've heard you say that you like sometimes temper what you write about or what you share so that you're not going to piss off your audience. So you probably say it more gracefully than that. Um, and just kind of like, like you said, not, not necessarily centrist, but like being more delicate so that seemingly from my perspective that you were trying to expand your audience and not really um, create any more polarization than we're seeing now. And it seems like that shifted a little bit. Yeah, right now, I, people ask me what my ambition is. And I'm like, I, I'd like to shrink my audience, I say. Ooh. Because, it, so it wasn't so much of like not saying what I think. It was more a matter of, okay, I know I'm speaking to a pretty broad spectrum of people here. Like a lot of my audience at least used to be progressives, leftists, you know, yeah. uh, who mostly cleaved toward the, I believe in science uh, position during the pandemic. And so I still have a lot of that legacy audience. Mm -hmm. And so I realized I'm like, okay, I'm speaking to a lot of people. I can't take for granted that people are on board with what I'm saying here on COVID. So I have to uh, um, preempt certain objections. I have to embed things in a deeper frame. I have to be really careful so that I don't immediately cause the the people who are on the fence or maybe just having some doubts just to uh, run away completely. Mm -hmm. um, but the disadvantage of that is that I never really get to the deep material. Like you got to preach to the choir sometimes too, right? So that that we can make beautiful music together. So. So there was that. Um, 
and also like at some points there was like some it may have looked and felt to some to some people and even myself as cowardice like okay i don't dare say what i really think but really that was reflecting um an internal doubt that i had because i really came to question how do i know for sure that what i believe is true mm-hmm. because there were so many conflicting narratives and each one was stated with such certainty including the conventional narrative mm-hmm. and these were you know like doctors that i knew you know people you know saying you know from emergency rooms yeah we are dealing with a real pandemic here and you know others saying ivermectin or whatever hydroxychloroquine does not work and then others also doctors in clinical practice saying it does work saying um or you know nurses saying yeah we're not really seeing it in this hospital that that like all these different narratives um and i'm like okay and then like so the first essay i wrote was called the coronation mm-hmm. and it was like it went pretty viral um and i received a lot of criticism uh, and and you know by contradicting what our authorities health authorities are telling us you are putting putting lives at risk you know you are literally killing people and i'm like well, how do i know that that's not true so i really and from people i trusted too mm-hmm. you know who weren't just out to attack me mm-hmm. so i really went through a, a process of examining i mean it got actually to even an unhealthy point where i began questioning things that i've directly experienced and i began to kind of gaslight myself like can you give me an example yeah like um like like the stuff of of the um basic uh integrity of medicine mm-hmm. of our medical system that has the most advanced therapies for things and that you know dismisses and ridicules certain alternative modalities and they're not tested they're not proven that but like i physically like experienced and firsthand witnessed healings that were considered medically impossible mm-hmm. that were considered scientifically impossible right uh, many many times mm-hmm. So am I like supposed to just take all those data points and throw them out? Well, I kind of started to do that, not not uh consciously, not explicitly. But I removed those building blocks from my or at least temporarily removed those building blocks from my um edifice of knowledge. And maybe that was an important exercise because I could see where where what I could build from that. and it was not a very habitable construction. Mm-hmm. So anyway, um for a while like I I mean I laid all I I went for 8 months in 2020 early 2021 without writing about covid at all. Mm-hmm. Until I got really really clear and solid within myself. And then I was able to and that's what you're referring to like at that point I became uh more outspoken. especially about the um totalitarian implications of running a society based on security safety health i mean that's how totalitarian totalitarianism works you need an enemy 
you need a, a, a them to create the fascist us. Mm -hmm. And then you also always have an, an internal enemy mm -hmm. that mirrors the external. So the external enemy is, you know, whatever, the Russians uh, or, or the virus. The internal enemy are the collaborators, mm -hmm. the anti-vaxxers. And then you have what began to develop during, during the pandemic. Mm -hmm. And that's, that's what I wrote about uh, most extensively. Mm -hmm. And you have, from my perspective, I obviously haven't met you in person. I look forward to that day. Um, but you strike me as very likable, right? As very, as very humble and as a very like warm and caring person. Is this the first time you have been on the receiving end of mass negativity thrust your way? Uh, yeah, pretty much. I mean, there's always, you know, negative comments and projections and stuff, but, but as far as like, you know, public denunciations and canceling and stuff like that. Yeah. That was a new territory for me. And what has that been like for you? Well, it actually, um, was, you know, really helpful in clarifying some of my, um, unprocessed trauma and, and, and fears that I hadn't had to confront. Mm -hmm. The, the pandemic really was an initiation for me and for an awful lot of people. Mm -hmm. So for, for example, one of those, you know, when I wrote, when I published the essay, this was the one that really got, got me in trouble um, called <laughs> Mob Morality and the Unvaxxed. Mm -hmm. And when I hit that publish button, I had a sense of foreboding. I had a sense of, of terror actually, because I knew what was going to happen. Right. And it like, stirred up probably it's like ancestral trauma you know my <clears throat> half of my family line is jewish uh, my grandfather only escaped death at age three when he was hidden in a haystack from a murderous mob during uh, a pogrom in russia Whoa. like like you know and i grew up hearing family stories of terror and starvation mm -hmm. uh the polish branch of the family they died in the warsaw ghetto you know, under Hitler, like this is so like to volunteer to identify myself as a member of a heretical sect mm -hmm. called, uh, you know, anti-vaxxers, mm -hmm. like that was really scary for me. And there's nothing like confronting your fear in order to, to integrate it and then transcend it. Mm -hmm. So, you know, it wasn't like the fear was ungrounded. You know, my, 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 my own publisher who I'd been with for 10 years, put on the front page of their website for a month, a denunciation of me as an, as an anti-Semite. Yeah. They called you an anti-Semite? Yeah. What? And other things. Yeah, I know. And, and, and like, yeah, because I, I, I understand the rationale because I said in that essay that the same social forces that are, that underlie witch hunts pogroms and the Holocaust are at work today. Of course. The, uh, you know, the forces of scapegoating, of dehumanization, of sacrificial dynamics in the sense of the philosopher René Girard. I said, yeah, this is all happening. And so then like the, the anti-Semitism charge comes from, they said, dishonoring the memory of the victims of the Holocaust by using them to make a political point and drawing a false equivalency between the scientific attempt to protect the vulnerable 
uh, with the mass murder of human beings. And, and so lots of people piled on and like I got, you know, like people, I, like I was on programs and they reached out to me and said, Charles, we can't have you on our program anymore. Um, we can't be associated with you. Like I became radioactive, which was ironic because that was the whole point of the essay. Like I was describing these dynamics where like it even goes back to school to like fourth grade where all of a sudden one kid's got cooties, right. you know, and then no one will touch him. Right. It's the same thing, you know? So anyway, yeah, that's, 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 uh, that was part of my uh, uh, hazing ritual that ended up being a huge gift because I'm way less afraid. I didn't even know those fears were operating. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Beautiful. So you mentioned now you're, you're eager to thin your audience. And I'm curious to know, like, what is your agreement with your audience and who now are you looking to connect with? Yeah. I mean, it's half, I'm half joking. Um, I think that the result of trying to shrink my audience might be that my audience grows, but it's really, I guess I'm just, um, I, I, sometimes I, I hit this point of, of weariness and exasperation where like a lot of the stuff I write is kind of, um, I point out the, the one of the patterns, because this is pretty a roundabout answer to your question, but one of the patterns at, at work, like I look at what are the deep social patterns that allowed this whole pandemic catastrophe to happen? What makes us vulnerable to totalitarianism? What makes us vulnerable to manipulation by psychopathic elites, if that's your narrative? Like, even if, even if we accept that there are psychopathic elites, where do they get their power? It's not because they have bigger muscles. It's because they have the complicity of the public, of millions and millions of decent people, even in the police forces. The police forces aren't riddled with psychopaths. The army isn't riddled with psychopaths, you know, like what, where are they getting their power? So it's, it's our acquiescence. So, so this is the question, what makes us so vulnerable to manipulation? And one of the deep patterns that I write about quite a lot is the pattern of diagnosing any problem as being caused by a villain. It's actually the same mentality as the um, germ theory of disease any illness, like find the pathogen, any social problem, find who we can blame for it. Mm -hmm. The immigrants, the Jews, the white supremacists, the Trumpers, Donald Trump, the, the bankers, like, I mean, left and right do pretty much the same thing. Mm -hmm. So that pattern makes us vulnerable to anybody, any demagogue who says, who says there's the enemy in our midst, like we're primed to accept that narrative and it makes us easy to manipulate. Mm -hmm. So I write about that a lot. And when, so it's a critique of the habit, the default habit of taking sides. Mm -hmm. And then people might respond with, but Charles, obviously those are the bad guys and these are the good guys. And by, by trying to understand the enemy, we're giving them a free pass and we're letting them off the hook and we're not holding them accountable. And like, and I'm like, no, I'm not saying that. Mm -hmm. But I get tired of explaining that every single time I write something. Mm -hmm. So I'm like, okay, maybe I just won't even bother to explain. 
and the people who get upset and don't understand that pacifism is not the same as acquiescence mm -hmm. and it's not the same as passiveism. Uh, and that in fact, the more deeply you understand your enemy, the better you'll be able to fight and you might not even have to fight. Like if you believe that your enemy is just demonic and just pure evil, you'll never understand them. And very rarely is anybody just pure evil. You know, you, you get to know these people. I was reading uh, Naomi Wolf's uh, excellent book, The Body is of Others. Mm -hmm. And she's describing like being in this, you know, super elite gathering, you know, and everybody has their yacht, you know, and their private jet. And they're talking about the, uh, um, the uh, Syriza government in Greece that's trying to resist the um, austerity measures and and like everybody's all very sophisticated, you know, and and talking about art and the opera and whatever. And like these are just, you know, what these hominids do in that particular setting that they're in. They're not any more evil than you know a bunch of guys at the football game, you know, this is just what human beings do, what we are. And if you don't understand that, then you're gonna end up jousting against windmills. Like you're gonna create enemies in the image of your own fear and perception. And the result is endless war. So like, I guess, um, I don't know. Um, rather than like, preempt all of the possible objections every time. And that, that's just a superficial level. I, I like to go really, really deep mm -hmm. into like the psychology, into the um, spirituality, um, like all the way to the bottom. Yeah. Without having to like apologize for it, you know, without having to say, okay, it's okay to, you know, cause then people are like, criticizing me for Charles used to be like so engaged with actual practical issues. And now there's all this, you know, new age spiritual mumbo jumbo and like, okay, so here's another, am I talking too much? Not at all. Okay. So here's another thing, like another of the, my internal patterns that comes up in all of this is like childhood stuff about trying to keep everybody happy, trying to keep mom happy and trying to keep dad happy at the same time and losing myself. Mm -hmm. So to me, like shrinking my audience really is about just not caring about that anymore. Mm -hmm. Yeah. That's huge. I'm, yeah. I'm happy for you to, to be there and to have integrated that piece because as yeah. writers it's like we're we're out there with our perspectives our unintegrated traumas are informing those so when we're shifting how we write what we're writing about you know the audience might be annoyed but that's you know that's reflecting our growth process our integration process you know letting go of needing to be liked of pleasing everyone yeah. but there's another part too it's not just like wanting to be liked it's also this impulse of, of kindness you know, because like if I say something like recently I wrote about um, and gave some stories that people shared with me about um, how it felt to be unvaccinated and to be ostracized mm -hmm. from groups that we'd been part of for a long time. Like yeah. one woman wrote, you know, she's like, I've been kicked out of my knitting circle. I've been kicked out of my ukulele circle. Yeah. I can't go to the 
soccer game. I can't like all these, you know, our church has expelled us. It was supposed to be a tolerant of diversity church. We can't go anymore. Like she listed like 20 different things, you know? And so I, I wrote a little bit about the social dynamics of that. Yeah. But then the people who had been vaccinated, they read it as, oh, Charles is blaming us. But, you know, and, and they feel like, so now I wasn't actually blaming them, but it's not, I'm not looking for an excuse, okay? I'm looking to actually deliver something good to the world through my writing. So how it's received is really important, much more important than did I actually say that? Mm -hmm. It's how it's received. And I want, I don't want to um, deepen the division by making people, by, by feeding the story that of us versus them by giving them the experience of being attacked. So it's not so simple, you know, as, as um, letting go of being liked and approved of. It's, it's also just an awareness of who I'm speaking to. Mm -hmm. and, and I don't think there's an easy solution to this dilemma. And as a writer, you probably understand what I'm talking about. Like, who is my audience? And by speaking to them, who am I leaving out? And what's the overall impact? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Well, one of the main pieces I got when you were talking about, you know, people wanting to, to have a demon to blame, a, a Trump, an anti-vaxxer, this or that, is that, well, then we're dodging self-responsibility. So if we're victims and it's everyone else's fault, then we're never going to take whatever responsibility is necessary for us to shift and course correct. You know, I've been tracking what's, what's going on right now for 22 years, and I've been trying my best to stop it. When it happened, I wasn't surprised, but for me, it was like, well, where have I dropped the ball? Like, where is my apathy or, you know, my disinterest in the political process contri contributing to this? So I feel the same about my audience where it's like, I trust my audience to be self-responsible and to take responsibility for their triggers and to trust that I'm coming from a place of purity and good intention. Of course, that always takes tweaking, but I think if I'm constantly second guessing my audience's ability to be triggered, you know, then I'm doing them a disservice. Right. That's true. Yeah. Yeah. And that's kind of where I'm coming to. Um, like, I just can't caretake everybody's triggers, you know? No. And, and I think it's, yeah. you know, I think that kind of, you know, from my perspective, it's a type of codependence that comes from kindness and comes from compassion. But I think that's part of the reason why we're at the place that we are today is because we don't trust one another to have the tools to lose it tag to you know to not be picked for dodgeball you know all these things that have made us so much softer and more sensitive so you know yeah i feel like it's just you know at this point if anyone thinks that you're not kind-hearted and that you're trying to hurt people then they have work to do on themselves yeah and i'm not so concerned about whether people think that i'm kind-hearted or, or i'm trying to hurt people it's more like what's the actual impact um, that that my words are having on society, and and like sometimes you know I'm really questioning whether my best service is to continue writing expository prose. Like maybe you know I've been doing a little more work with story, you know, with other ways of using the power of word besides here's you know, besides making an argument. 
Yeah. This is something I've, you know, I, I'm in, I'm a journalist. That's my background, but these days I'm demonized as what some people would call conspiracy theorists. And I know that, you know, the history of that word, so I don't necessarily cozy up to it. Um, but you know, I've spoken to people in the community about it of like, I don't know how effective we're going to be when it's like, you know, an angry person yelling at the camera and speaking in like sort of didactic, instructive languaging versus being more entertaining, more metaphorical, using more poetry and fiction to deliver the message, you know, kind of like medicine in, you know, some peanut butter or something. Yeah, right. And, and, and you know, ultimately, one of my favorite sayings is you can't reason somebody out of a belief that they didn't reason themselves into to begin with. Oh, I like that. So our beliefs are not isolated intellectual constructs. Mm-hmm. They're part of a state of being. Mm-hmm. They are like the, the top layer of a state of being. And I know this because I've seen time and again when somebody has an impactful experience that changes who they are, then their beliefs quickly and easily change around that. So as agents of change, Maybe it's more important, maybe we can just trust that whatever healing that we embody, whatever vibration that we embody, that that will be a lot more attractive than the logical arguments we can make and the evidence that we can cite. Because we've all had the experience of the futility of logic and evidence in changing anybody's mind. Something else has to change. And maybe the the vehicle of change like is when like we really pay attention to somebody and see them with eyes of love Mm -hmm. and peace. Mm -hmm. And they pick up on that somehow and they're a little bit less resistant. And maybe then you do say a couple things about what you think about something and it lands in a way that it ordinarily wouldn't. There's not as much resistance. Mm-hmm. And they're like, whatever this guy's on, I want some of that, you right. know? <laughs> so I think that, um, you know, there's people have an aversion to characters like, like David Icke um, and a lot of the well-known conspiracy theorists. Like, there's an energy there of... Um, I mean, there's there's a mix, but but one of there's an energy of despair because that that creeps in because if you really believe that the hands is under the the, the world is in the hands of a super powerful um, invisible elite, then what hope is there for the world if they're in control of the media of the money system of everything? And so that despair is not attractive to people. Whereas, oh, it's attractive to some. It's actually kind of attractive to me. There's part of me that that feels a perverse comfort in my irredeemable victimhood. Hmm. But more and more, I'm attracted to the new story of how change happens, what's possible, and who I am, Mm -hmm. that 
requires data points that do not fit that narrative, mm -hmm. that show um, that reality is not a contest of force versus force, that miraculous synchronicities can happen in correspondence with a release of control mm -hmm. on my part. And therefore that we are powerful far beyond what the conspiracy narrative says we are. Mm -hmm. And I'm, I don't wanna draw like too hard a distinction here because um, usually the conspiracy, and when I say conspiracy narrative, I'm talking about the capital C conspiracy, okay? Because mm -hmm. as I said before, I think there are all kinds of conspiracies and cover-ups going on. Mm -hmm and corruption in the pharmaceutical industry and the regulatory agencies, all that, okay? Mm -hmm. But the big C conspiracy, um, usually there's an element of that narrative that is about awakening. They're afraid of us awakening to our true power. And so the paradox is that the capital C conspiracy isn't actually powerful, mm -hmm. but there is some kind of mixed message in the narrative that gives them power that they don't have. And that radiates out and I think turns people off. I just spent some time with Zach Bush. It seems like I know you have like some comebacks here, but I, I, you know, I just spent some time with Zach Bush. Um, he's become a dear friend. And he's like, I mean, he's fully aware of all of these narratives, but he basically decides that he is not living in that reality. Mm -hmm. He's living in the reality where the people in positions of power want to change. And it's maybe requires courage for them to do so and overcoming a lot of institutional inertia and going against what their peer group says or seems to think, but they really secretly want to. And he's gonna give them an opportunity to do that. Mm -hmm. and, and he's like, yeah, we've already won everything that needs to happen for this world transforming movement to, to blossom, it's already done. The work is already done and it's happening. And that corresponds, that belief corresponds to a state of being. That's the result of his personal journey, I guess, mm -hmm. and the whatever blessings he's received in his life. And, and so that's the level that I'm like, I when I'm writing about, you know, the COVID politics or the social dynamics of it, the psychological, I, sometimes I have the feeling that I'm not getting down to this level, you know, because I just have to clear away too much smoke, you know, and I'm like, I want to talk about this level. And maybe that means speaking to a smaller audience. Because um, a lot of people are going to have already turned this, this conversation off. <laughs> My audience knows what they're in for. <laughs> um, it's interesting because um, I find David Icke, who I've been tracking, you know, since probably the 90s, um, I find him very hopeful and I find his message to be very positive and uplifting. Um, but again, I've been in this conspiracy conversation for quite a long time as a journalist, which is why it gets extra loaded for me, where it's like, you know, I see so many people 
saying that these things are impossible because of the limits of their own imagination, which I, I find is so odd where it's like, I can't imagine all these media companies are inclusion. And it's like, that's not debunking. Like just because your, your imagination remains contracted doesn't mean that it's not true. And I find it interesting, like how many people have done no actual research into these things, but definitively declare that they're not true just because the inside yeah. of their brain rejects it. Yeah. Yeah. And don't get me wrong. I, I like David Icke. Like I'm not, you know, trying to paint him as like anything bad. And I do think he's, he's, he has a, has a note of positivity and he appeals to a lot of people. Um, and there's also though, there's also um, like, I can understand why some people are repelled by him as well. Like very, very um, good versus evil mm -hmm. in his worldview, you know, and, and for me that, makes me uneasy because there's always a part of myself that that wonders maybe I'm one of the evil ones and like have you ever in like on on like plant medicine or in meditation have you ever had that that like humiliating realization that oh my god everything that I've ever done is from ego or like 99.9 percent yes. .9 of it <laughs> and you know if we're going to go around condemning people like there's the secret suspicion that maybe actually I'm in that group and I just put on a better show and someday the mob will turn on me. Like there's, this is one of the chief insecurities of the human psyche uh, because this experience of the mob turning on you has been witnessed throughout history, like, and before history. Mm -hmm. Like this is one of our deepest instincts is to figure out who's the popular crowd and who they're going to turn on and make sure that, you know, you're not in that subgroup that's going to get victimized. Like, so, so that, um, I think that that's one of the deepest explanations for the, um, social catastrophe that has arisen in result, uh, in response to COVID like that pattern. Um, and so, while I think that that um, the conspiracy universe is revealing a lot of things that, like you say, that people are just unwilling to look at because they break their worldview. Like the, they're like the glitch in the matrix. They don't fit in to their matrix of belief. So they just have to discard them. Because if that were true, then everything I know would be false. Like even something as simple as if, if you know, John F. Kennedy was, was killed with, with a CIA backed conspiracy, like what does that mean about our government today? What does that mean about history? What is that, like you can't even take that data point in. And I think that there's an awful lot of those data points. Like I'm not writing off David Icke or, or anything. That said, like not all the conspiracies can be true. And most of them speak with the same vibration of certainty, whether it is, you know, flat earth um, or hollow earth, or the ones that think that there's 500 years of history that's, that, that has been added and that the, you know, like, I mean, you, you're familiar with all these, right? Of course, Tartaria. <laughs> yeah, and they contradict each other. Like you, they can't all be true. 
Why can't they though? I mean, some people yeah. are working in ERs and saying the pandemic's super real, everyone's dying. And then some another doctor saying it's not at all. So we're right. obviously well, that, living in a multidimensional, like right. weird world with divergent timelines. Right. Okay. So if you're right, so if we're going to go to questioning objective reality um and living in a in a multiverse, yeah, I'm totally with you. And in fact, that's where I where I went in the I wrote an essay called The Conspiracy Myth. Mm -hmm. I that, love that one. Yeah, that kind of goes into that territory. Like um, calling something a myth doesn't mean it's false. Right. Kind of the opposite, actually. You know, myths carry a truth beyond their factual content. Mm -hmm. And I think there's a deep truth in even the big C conspiracy theory, mm -hmm. which is basically that, that an unfriendly power is... Um, orchestrating the tragic events of this world mm -hmm. and that the people we see as our leaders are but puppets of this power. Mm -hmm. like there's a deep truth in that. Personally, I don't think that the power is best understood as being a small coterie of, um, you know, shadowy billionaires and reptilian ETs. But I'm not saying that that's not true either. Like even that myth also carries truth, whether or not it's factually true and, what, and whatever fact means, I mean, that's a whole can of worms too. Mm -hmm. But like it carries a truth regardless of its factual content and that there is something alien to human well-being about this and even reptilian in a way um, and, and inhuman. It's it's inhuman. It it is like in deep contradiction to our fundamental humanity. Mm -hmm. So that that truth can take the form of a myth in our conventional sense of something that's you know not not actually true. Mm -hmm. But if you if you believe that um, reality is constructed of myth, not of particles, mm -hmm. not of facts but of myths, then you could have like some people having, you know, some people like, you know, looking at Hillary Clinton and she shapeshifts into a reptilian and back again, and somebody else looking at the same time and not seeing that. And the Cartesian mind wants to say, well, one of them has to be true and one has to be the imagination. But what if they're simply living in two alternate realities? Yeah. And even if we're talking about like 3D rationalist particle reality, everything is still, um, what is it, wave or particle? Like even physical reality is not constant or consistent. It depends on our, our lens of perception. Right. So I think, you know, and, and for me, it's a matter of just like, how far we develop our consciousness and how much we unravel because i'm sure you know the more that we work on ourselves meditate do plant medicine plant medicine our ideas of reality get fuzzier and fuzzier right, right. like it all starts to get really thin so even with flat earth because i've i know you've brought it up before and it, these days it's kind of the script like if someone's on a podcast and they acknowledge one conspiracy, then they have to deride flat earthers at the same right. time, right? It, it goes without you saying. You make fun but... of the more weird kids so that you don't 
fall into yeah exactly right. but then we go into like okay let's pretend i didn't know everything i know about nasa which i do because i do my research but let's take that off the table and assume nasa's on the up and up we're still limited by our third dimensional monkey minds and our five senses so what appears to be round from this perspective very well might not be with more faculties and other dimensional per, you know perceptions so i think yeah. there's there's just something to this willingness to say i don't know that i think would be so liberating for humanity even just as an intellectual exercise to not make fun of flat earthers but in the same way of like well what is their perspective like right. okay break it down for me how how could the earth be flat and avail ourselves to the fact that we might not know everything about everything for tuning in to this episode of Word Up with Danny Katz. I trust that you are enjoying my conversation with Charles Eisenstein so much that you're jonesing to nab the second half. You can find the second half of this podcast conversation and all of my podcast conversations on either my locals or Patreon communities where paid supporters get access to not just my second half conversations, bonus essays, writings, videos, monthly drop-ins with me and the tribe, special discounts for webinars and courses and workshops. It's so well worth it. So join us over on Patreon, patreon.com slash dannycats or locals, dannycats.locals.com or both because yes anding is just way more fun. As well as you're wanting to stay abreast of my every offering, I recommend signing up for my newsletter at dannycats.com. I promise not to share your information with anyone weird or really anyone. Um, and I only send out newsletters when I am sharing something valuable and something awesome that is going to add to your life. As well for signing up, you get a free PDF, five quantum linking hacks for instant empowerment. And who doesn't want instant empowerment? So you know what to do. Hit that subscribe button before navigating on over to dannycats.com to sign up for my newsletter and then navigating over to locals and or Patreon to find the second half of this awesome conversation with Charles Eisenstein. Thanks for tuning in, tribe. Have a rockin' day. Thanks so much for tuning in to today's episode of Word Up with Danny Katz. Be sure to hit that subscribe button if you haven't already. And as you are inspired to learn more about my quantum linking work, about my books, my homeschool courses, my transformational and empowered badassery coaching, check out my website, dannycats.com. As well, track all of my latest content on my locals page, dannycats.locals.com. Thanks for tuning in. I'll see you soon, tribe.